Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. Good morning. Let me invite you to open your Bible to John chapter 18. This morning we're going to be reading and then studying together John 18 verses 15 through 27. So John writes there, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, beginning in verse 15, that Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. And at once 
a rooster crowed. So let's pray. <clears throat> oh Lord, our hope is in you. We can read the word. We can try to explain it. And we should. It's all well and good. But at the end of the day, we still stand in need of your grace, your power, your help for anything above nature, for anything supernatural to occur in this time. So please come in your mercy and attend us. Meet us in your word. You yourself speak to us. Teach us in our hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so I saw an app the other day. Not big on all the apps of today, really. But uh, I saw one. And basically what it did was fix your face. Okay. Uh, it was actually a, a critical advertisement, and I think rightly so. Uh, but it started with this sort of dolled up face, so that you thought that what you were seeing, the face that you were seeing, was actually the face of the person. Only for the effect of the app to then be dropped, and the person's actual face to be revealed, in all of its morning glory. Um, <clears throat> this app provided sort of a public mask to cover up the personal reality, to cover up the plain truth. And this also applies spiritually. We're rather skilled, and I think bound and determined at times to present better than we really are. We want people to think that we're quite far along in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we're sound in Him, that we're useful, that we're devoted, that we're on fire, as we like to say. Don't we radiate the glory of Christ? And then comes a situation. Then comes a situation that acts like a bug in the app, and the effect is dropped. We're seen as we really are, which in our own strength is always only a whisker away, even at our best, from the rooster's crow. There will be times when our hearts are laid bare, when we're stripped of our pomp, we're wiped of our show, we're spiritually exposed. And so here, following but defiantly unwilling to own the trial space of Jesus, here is Peter. Here is Peter really. The other stuff is Peter too, of course, and Christ is going to grow Peter up to be far more than he is at this point in his story. But here, here is the real Peter. The same who earlier pledged his life to Jesus now stands up. This Peter. And no doubt you've been there too. Maybe you're there right now. You're following Jesus, and as promised, 
You were given opportunity to confess or deny Him before those who will think ill of you for doing exactly that. The invitation to identify with Jesus was sent and then you hit return to sender. You chose the warmth of the world's fire pits. Though you are a disciple, you chose in the moment to live at a safe distance from the Lord Jesus. And you were exposed. But that's not all bad. Because you see, even when the worst of us is exposed, still there, right there, the best of Jesus is revealed. The more we admit our own spiritual fragility, our lack of strength, the more we'll know our Lord's undying love and stability, all of His strength for us. Christianity is this kind of beautifully backwards thing. We boast not in our strength, but in our what? Our weaknesses. Why do we do that? Well, let's come to our text and see. Dealing first with following Jesus to a point. Following Jesus to a point. We pick up the passion narrative in verse 15, and what I want you to see is that Simon Peter was following Jesus. He followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Right, so Peter, he catches a lot of flack for these impending denials that we're going to see in the passage, and almost to the point that we fail to see that he and this other disciple have actually followed Jesus to this point. All the other disciples are gone. They've deserted Jesus here. They've scattered. they fled by now, but not Peter and not this mystery disciple. No, their threshold for open identification with Jesus is greater than all the other disciples. By grace, these two guys are, are braver still. It's just that another threshold now remains. There's another line to cross. There's another point at which they must decide to follow Jesus still further. But I think it's important to establish this. Peter is not Judas. Peter is not Judas. There may be some Judas in Peter, but there was no Peter in Judas. What I mean is, there was no saving grace in Judas, but there is in Peter. This isn't a scene where the one guy's faith proves to be pure as gold, true gold, while Peter's faith proves to be of the fool's gold variety. Peter is a true disciple of Jesus. He really, really does love Jesus. We're going to see that at the end of John's gospel. And truth be told, we need more disciples and more men in particular like Peter. Those characterized by a Christ-following fearlessness that's second to one. If you're familiar with the Pilgrim's Progress, uh, the main character is a guy named Christian. His former name was Graceless. He becomes a Christian, and Christian needed a faithful, right? It's a guy's name, faithful. He needed a faithful, he needed a hopeful on his journey to the celestial city. Following Jesus all the way home, full steam ahead, is a daunting delight. And so we're going to need the pull. We're going to need the support of other disciples to make it all the way home. And Peter, we're seeing, is no exception to that rule. 
That's why, by the way, the Christian not only needs to be, as we say, in a church, but the Christian needs to be known by a church. Isolation and anonymity as a Christ follower is not only a bad idea, it is an unbiblical one. If Peter has a point at which he would deny Jesus, if Peter has a point at which he would keep a safe distance from Jesus, so do you and so do I. And so, we all need what the gospel alone supplies. Not just, for instance, personal forgiveness of all our sins, but a purposeful family. A people intent on loving us enough to pull on us. To pull on us into deeper discipleship. Harder, but bolder and sweeter displays of love to Jesus. And in verses 15 and 16, Peter has one of those. He has one of those, which is good, but man, if only we had a family of those. Now this disciple, as I said, is a bit of a mystery disciple. He's unnamed in the passage, and you see he's known and welcomed by the high priest in a way that Peter is not known. He's not welcomed like this other guy, and for that reason, it's thought, he's not one of the twelve but maybe he's uh, Nicodemus. Maybe he's Joseph of Arimathea. We don't really know. But at any rate, this disciple goes right on into the court of Annas while Peter stays outside at the door, which seems so far to be innocent enough. But then what? Maybe Peter's thinking, okay, (laughs) I've made it to this point. I'm good right here. Just leave me alone. (laughs) I'm fine where I stand. I followed far enough, far as disciples go. I'm looking around. I'm the only one standing here. The other guys have gone. I'm good. Bonus points for me. And then the other disciple comes along and ruins it all. He leverages his influence. And he goes out of his way and straight to the servant girl. He says, hey, go and invite Peter. Call him in. Bring him in to the trial space of Jesus. And that threshold, that line, that breaking point draws nearer for Peter. And what a thing to consider for a number of reasons. You'll notice that this uh, girl is on the lookout. She's the guardian at the door of the courtroom as any space with Christ in this world is prone to be a courtroom, a trial space. And the world has a sin-biased judgment against the Jesus of Scripture, and it keeps a lookout, we need to know, it keeps a lookout for anyone who might enter that trial space as his disciple. So, you see Peter is brought in, he enters that space, Being a spectator to the scene is not the breaking point for Peter. What is it? It's being in that scene and being pressed beyond being a spectator. It's being in that scene and identifying as a disciple of Jesus, which is all the more interesting. You put Peter in a darkened garden with a sword and he is ready to fight a battalion. 
He's lopping off ears. Jesus has to tell him, stop it. What are you doing? This is not in accord with the gospel. But you put Peter in this lighted courtroom with nothing but his nerve. Well, he loves Jesus. He just doesn't love Jesus as well as he thought he did. You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? We got to feel that, each one of us. Are you? That bare and bearing question on the lips, not of a soldier, but of a servant girl, shakes Peter down to the core. His strength immediately leaves him. He has no courage left. And so end of verse 17, he answers this girl, I am, oh, that he would have stopped right there. I am not. He denies Jesus. Peter still cares too much about how he looks in front of the religious overseers in Jerusalem. Military horde, I will fight to the death. But political priests, those with the authority, he thinks, to bind and loose with God, those with the reins of reputation and standing in that society, I dare not cross them. If their ire is on Jesus, I would sooner forfeit Jesus than face that ire. Do you recall what happened in Galatians chapter 2? This is after the resurrection. This is after the great Pentecostal sermon of Peter. Right? This is after he has become this bold lion for Jesus. He is at a barbecue with Gentiles. And the Judaizers, these guys from Jerusalem or the surrounding areas, they show up. And what does Peter do? Even then, he separates from the Christians just to look right in front of those men. And you remember Paul, right? Paul then publicly rebukes Peter for doing this because it spoke ill of the heart of the gospel. Because his separation from them in view of those guys said sinners are not justified before God and by God through faith in Jesus alone, period. That's what his actions said. And Paul wasn't going to have that. Those sinners are justified before God and by God through faith in Jesus alone. So here, a point of departure has come. I think there's something at play for Peter like that in this. A situation has arisen that freezes Peter's zeal for Jesus. His devotion to Jesus is still far too situational. What about your devotion to Jesus? Are there situations in which our love to Christ is less obvious? Are there points at which you think this far, Jesus, but no farther. What trial spaces spook you the most? 
And what are you doing to handle them better than Peter handles this one? Beloved, Jesus means, I want you to hear, Jesus means for us to mortify, to kill, to put to death a Christianity that is merely situational. And he's made that clear. Listen, this is not something that he adds after the fact. He's made that very clear to all of his disciples from the very beginning. If anyone would come after me, they must what? Take up their uh, their cross daily and follow me. Meaning, there is not to be a space, a time, or situation ever in which if asked, are you one of his? We respond, I am not. Our identification with Jesus is all the way to the cross. Every day. And to help us here, I'll just say this. Some part of our identifying with Jesus under fire is trusting the right guardianship, isn't it? Peter has a choice to make. I can trust the guy that just threw a battalion to the ground by speaking three words to him in English. A guy who then pledges the same power to the preservation of my soul. I can trust that guy or I can doubt him. I can doubt that. I'll take care of myself. Thank you very much, Jesus. And if you do that, you won't enter the trial space with Jesus. In those moments, who will you trust? Jesus or yourself? Don't trust yourself. Or perhaps it's more a matter of perspective. Maybe it's more a matter of perspective. What do you see when you look in on that trial space? Does it look appealing to you? Are you like, I want to go there? Or that is the farthest thing from where I want to be? It will not be appealing to you, of course, if all you see when you look in on that trial space is suffering and death. But what if, in suffering with Christ, what you see is resurrection life? What if what you saw is what it is to be most alive? Because being like Jesus is what it is to be most alive in the world. It was Paul's ambition in Philippians chapter 3, verses 9, 10, 11, to share in the sufferings of Christ. He said, I want to become like Him even in His death. Why? Just to know Him and the power of His what? His resurrection. Because Paul was alive from the dead. That's why. Dead souls will not live Jesus, but living souls will grow to die for Him. And even when they falter, they'll want to reckon truly with the chill that's in their souls. It is another poor item that we find in Peter that in verse 18, he now stands with the lost. 
He stands with the lost and warms himself by the fire that they've kindled. It is an abiding temptation. Listen now. It is an abiding temptation to manage our cold affections for Jesus. By warming ourselves at the world's fire pits. When we should weep and mourn and repent at the first and least sign of cold affections for Jesus, we often instead just let it slide and then turn to anything that will make us feel better about ourselves. That will deflect the sin without ever dealing with the sin. That will numb us to the chilly air of the night in our souls. Now that's going to come for Peter. That repentance, that mourning, that weeping over his cold affections for Christ, that's coming for Peter. But we can just pray that it comes faster for you and me. That we would be quicker to stabilize a fire for Jesus. So that we own up and follow Him at every point. Peter does not do that here. He follows Jesus to a point. And that brings us to verse 19. And the questioning of Jesus to a punch. It says the high priest Annas questioned Jesus about two things. His disciples and his teaching or his doctrine. His disciples and his doctrine. He wants to know the magic behind the making of all this fuss or in his mind the errors that have led so many astray from God. And as we go to Jesus' response, let's just see that the two are supposed to be inseparable. His disciples and His doctrine. And that even where we don't make the connection as we should, the unbelieving, like Annas, very well might. Beloved, belief and behavior go together. What we confess and the culture created by what we confess, these things, they go hand in hand. It should be no shock to us that a church that's mired in biblical illiteracy would reflect poorly upon Jesus. Would have very little Christian community, and that what little they had was basically cultural, nominal. It will be hard to show profoundly for a Jesus that we hardly know. Doesn't mean those who do know him profoundly can't also give a deficient picture like Peter or that one who's just begun to know him can't nevertheless greatly magnify him. It just means that normally, normally, the truer we know him, the truer we'll show him. The disciples of Jesus were not worrisome to Annas because they were poorly taught. You see? His teaching creates His people. And His people thereby reflect His teaching. The world ought to be able to come in here, come in among us, and get a look at us like the servant girl got a look at Peter, only distinctly from Peter, to see the truth of Jesus. 
Jesus has just prayed for precisely that in John 17, hasn't he? It is an indictment of Peter and of us when what we say and what we do stand at odds. Uh, Clearly, it's vital to the cause of Christ that you and I pray and work to bond those two things together, truth and our life, together. You come into that trial space with Jesus, the question will be, tell me about the disciples. What are they like? Tell me about the body of doctrine. What have they embraced with their lives? We live in a watching and curious world. And we need to be mindful of that all the time for the sake of Christ. But you see that Jesus takes issue with the line of questioning there in verses 20 and 21? It's probably true that the high priest is out of order in all of this. The gathering itself is probably out of order. It's not following scriptural protocols, what you would find in the law, and it's being done in secret. Which is another issue for Jesus. And that's the issue of insincerity on the part of the high priest. Annas questions him as if he, Jesus, had secretly introduced a new schism, a new religion to overthrow the true religion under the cover of night. And Jesus, always perfect with His words, simply will not have that. He has no need to rehash what He's taught. He said all that needed saying, and His saying it has been carried out in the open for the world that was to hear it. And that includes all the places where all the Jews gathered. And Annas is implied in that. You see? Jesus came into the world as light. He came into the world as wide open revelation. He came into the world as demonstrable divinity in the flesh. And Annas has been party to it, such that to now inquire of Jesus as if the Word incarnate had only privately whispered in secret places is the height, it is the height of a damnable irony. Annas is the one in the dark concerning the truth. Annas is the one moving in secret against God. Annas is the one, in fact, who is on trial and in denial. So, set Jesus aside for a moment. He's conducted Himself so publicly that if Annas so desired, it would not be hard for Him to find credible witnesses for doing things carrying out this trial in the right manner. It is so curious that a commoner on the moonlit streets of Jerusalem might be able, Jesus thinks, says, to reproduce the words of Jesus, but the high priest cannot. And playing coy will not. That's very curious. Dear ones, listen. Among the lost, it is common to shield the heart by acting like they've never heard the truth before. But oftentimes they have. 
And when they have, it's not then that they don't know the truth of Jesus. It's that they won't submit their hearts to the truth of Jesus. They can't believe the truth of Jesus. They hear the truth of Jesus, but no matter how glorious it is, until they are born again, it's only received as a threat upon their souls. That can't be right. It doesn't confirm my beliefs. It does not pamper my pride. It does not allow for the sins that I love so dearly. It crucifies my self-righteousness. So, sorry, but what was that again? It's all ooh and ah, and that's very interesting. Now, if you don't mind, I have another curiosity, and another curiosity, and another one. Tell me again, and again, and again, and so on. Because they never want to get to the fact of the matter. So, friend, maybe this morning you're like Annas in that way. You, you don't need a refresher course on Gospel 101. You need to repent of your sins. You need to believe upon Jesus. And you need to become one of His disciples. You've heard the truth before. You need to believe it. You need to bow to it. Don't let your pride convince you to linger any longer when all you need for eternal life is literally standing like Jesus before Annas, right in front of you. There's an officer nearby. He doesn't like that. Yeah. Exactly. It's exactly what he thinks. He doesn't like that kind of merciful forwardness from Jesus. And so for the first time in this gospel, as a precursor to the cross, Jesus is, verse 22, unjustly harmed. If you need to see the heart posture of sinful man, you don't need to go to Fox News or CNN or whatever the other one, MSNBC, I don't know. If you need to see the heart posture of sinful man, See this man striking the face of God because of something God said. That throws you right back to the garden in Genesis. Okay? He strikes Jesus as if, again, Jesus is out of order. How dare he spit the truth and implicate our venerated heads? of any wrongdoing. Could anything be true of our culture today? We have literally created a media world, a fantasy world, that's fueled not by right and wrong, not by truth and error, but by likes. Can you believe it? It's fueled by likes and dislikes. If we like it, it's right. And true, 
If we don't like it, it's wrong and erroneous. But at the end of the day, what I like is the judge of all. Jesus is from another world. And here's how he responds, no less, to being punched in the face. If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, my friend, why do you strike me in the face? In other words, why are you so angry? Why are you so violent? Why indeed? Why do you strike me in the face? He strikes him in the face because he is not concerned. The officer is not concerned about the truth of what Jesus has said so much as he is the tenor of it. He just doesn't like it. As a general rule, people respond like this when they know no other way to respond to losing. They respond like this when they know no other way to respond to conviction, to being put in their rightful place. And in the end, I'm just going to be honest with you, Jesus is not settling for second place. The last shall be what? And perhaps even here, there's some sense of that being given off. Interesting, the repeated emphasis on their binding him, I believe that's in verse 24. It reminds of Psalm 2, if you're familiar with Psalm 2, where the enemies of God and of his Christ, what do they say? They say, let us burst their bonds apart. Let us burst their bonds apart. Let us be free of their reign. I don't want their rule in my life anymore. I want to be free to live however I want to live. Away with God. Away with Christ. Only here they imagine to do this by binding God in Christ. By trying Him and striking Him and bottling Him up. Heaven forbid we let Him loose on the world. Hmm. But then we know, don't we, if you go to Psalm 2, God will have the last and everlasting laugh. He will get out to the world. Okay. Back to a bit of tears, though. We've seen Jesus followed to a point. We've seen Him questioned to a punch. Last, let's see Jesus denied, which will then throw us back upon a prophecy. So there's Peter, verse 25. He's still warming himself at the unbeliever's fire pit. And as he does, the frost upon his heart, it only thickens. They ask him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? And he answers, I am not. But then a relative of Malchus, maybe with an axe to grind, relative of Malchus, he comes up to Peter and he says, you sure about that? I believe I saw you in the garden just a moment ago with Jesus. And Peter again denies Jesus for the third time. And the text says that at once, not unimportantly, a rooster crowed. 
Beloved, this text means to lay us low. It's a low point for Peter. Charles Spurgeon once said, so long as we're an inch above the ground, we're an inch too high. Well, Peter's denials are meant to remove that final bit of spiritual pride. It sure intends to put us on guard, doesn't it? In Peter, we see how one spiritual quake can ripple out and bring the whole soul, however sound the structure, to the ground. One crack in the dam can let loose a flood. A bit of damage to the armor can become a weakened spot to be exploited. A single denial, when confronted by an unbeliever, when confronted by fear of man, when confronted by a temptation, when confronted by sinful indulgence, one denial can lead much more easily and adamantly then to a second and a third and to a thousand compromises and so on. We are not so strong that we cannot repeatedly fall. That's why we're told to take care, thinking we stand, lest we fall. Don't give one inch to sin or self. You do that, you will find that they will both be adamant about taking a mile. And if you will let them, dragging you all the way to hell. As you must, hear the rooster crow here and let it startle you out of prolonged, perhaps even years, of Christ-denying patterns of sin. I want you to hear, Christian, it can be overcome. Don't just sit there in your sin and go, I've done it again. It can never be broken. I'm a lost cause. That's not true. It can be overcome. And it begins by being spiritually broken. We know from the other Gospels, when Peter heard the rooster crow, it broke him in pieces. And why wouldn't it? It was the sound, as Jesus had prophesied it would be, that Jesus knows us. (laughs) Jesus knows us better than we know ourselves, infinitely, perfectly better. That He is not fooled by our false bravado. Oh, I will go all the way to prison and even to the grave for you, Jesus. Oh, Peter. That there is no fronting before Jesus. There is just the fact of us before Jesus. Jesus sees right to the worst of us. That should break us. And more to the breaking, it only draws out, it only draws out the best of Him for us. That He loves us in spite of us. Hear this. Our sinfulness is not a repellent as sadly I think we've come to believe. Our sinfulness is not a repellent to the one who came into the world to save and to sanctify what? Sinners. 
I said this would take us back to a prophecy. Do you recall the exchange between Jesus and Peter in John 13? Lord, Peter said, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. There is no point at which I will turn back from you. And Jesus says, oh, Peter, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. He knows what Peter's going to do. Our sins are not new information to Jesus. As if He has another one or one million to get over today in order to love us tomorrow all the way to eternity. That's not how it is. Gloriously. Jesus knows the absolute worst about you already. That's not something He's going to discover. He knows it. Peter has denied Jesus. Just think about this. Peter has denied Jesus. He just took the Last Supper. Just after hearing, as one put it, the most touching address and prayer that mortal ear has ever heard. Just after the clearest warnings to his soul. See Judas? Just after this word of Christ to him in John 13, when Peter should be most armored to stand with Jesus, he denies him in multiples. That's bad. That's, that's got to be close to rock bottom. And you know what? Here's the crazy thing. Jesus knew it. And yet, before it ever happened, he fronted it with prayer. Peter, I have prayed for you so that when this happens, your faith will not fail. He fronts it with prayer. And then he's going to go on to pay for it on the cross. I've got it, Peter. The wrath of God for all eternity that that deserves, I got it. And after he's risen from the dead, he's going to come behind it too. And he's going to say, Peter, I love you. Do you love me? I know you do. And he's going to restore him. He's going to restore that relationship. He's going to restore the relationship that Peter only thought he had forfeited. Of those given me, I will not lose one. That's not a generalization. That's a fact of grace. And what a grace to know. It's no less true for you, Christian, than it was for Peter. In various ways, we too deny Jesus, we confess. But Jesus will never deny Himself in us though we find it ghastly at times to lay down our lives for Him, He never, ever once has
hesitated to lay down his life for sinners like you and me. And on that most solid ground then, we're set free. We're set free to be so very weak. Or rather, to be so very strong in Jesus. To be broken in pieces in a way that only Jesus can pick up and put back together and better. To drop the effect of the app. To be seen where and as we really are, if only to be clothed more fully in the all-sufficient grace and power and beauty of Jesus. We've seen Him arrested, and we've prayed that He would arrest us. Now we've seen Him denied, and our prayer needs to be that He'd come to be undeniable for us. Beloved, a little later in the Bible, this very same John is going to give a very specific definition of what he calls the redeemed. He says we're to be those who, quote, follow the Lamb wherever He goes. We might say that we're pointless in the sense (laughs) that there becomes no point at which we won't identify with the one who goes on to die for us. How can you and I meet the challenge of our future selves today? That's what we're going to be. Those who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. How can we meet that today? One thing we know, it will not be by our own strength. So, let's take it to prayer. Let's take it to Jesus. And let's ask Him for His strength. Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for Your Word. We pray again, because all of our hope is in You, that You Yourself would teach our hearts. Make us to know the power of the Word that is living and active. Let it break us so long as it comes back to bind us again to You. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.